Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? All right. Hey. (laughs) Um, Okay, so short short passage again today. And uh, how are you? Are you good? I feel great. I feel happy this morning. I don't know why. Maybe it's the Tycho music rolling in the, in the breaks. Never mind. Um, so uh, I'm going to pray, and we're just going to dive into this. We're going on a bit of a journey here today. Um, we're going we're gonna to start here, and then we're just going to go like really, really far away, and then we're going to work our way back. Uh, we're going to take route through history, and it's going to be fun. So, um, all right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We uh, we we gather here to ask you to speak to us, to reveal to us some things that we need to hear, some things we need to know. Um, we are a, a broken people, a hurting people, and, uh, but a hopeful people. And, and we see hope in this world. We, we see that um, your kingdom has the answers that we need. We see that uh, your message is one that brings healing. And uh, I ask that you would reveal some of that to us today that uh, parts of us would be healed, that um, we'd be encouraged, enlightened, and uh, made joyful again. Thank you. We love you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so there is a word here in this passage that I'm going to start with. I'm going to look at two words, um, then we're going to go back to sort of prehistory, and then we're going to talk about the book of Leviticus, because that's what you do. Um, and then uh, we're going we're gonna to end up back here again. But we're going to start right here with this one word, begun. I'm going to read this last sentence for you. It says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So the word begun is this word, enarchestai. I want you to say that, enarchestai. Good. All right. So, um, so this, is a, this is not just a word that means begun. If I were to just tell you, I'm going to start tomorrow, that you're just going to think that's going to be the beginning of something. The word Paul uses is not, has nothing to do with just starting something. It actually ha- it, it is a word that refers directly to ancient sacrifices, um, and specifically to the, the processes of the sacrifice. Um, and so let me walk you through this to explain what I mean. Um, so ancient Greco-Roman sacrifices, there is this altar, and whatever god you're going to worship, you're going to have an altar to this god, and you're going to um, you're going to want to offer something on the, on the altar to this God. Um, and so around this altar, this is going to be sort of built in sort of a, a half circle shape. And then there's going to be some space around it, enough space to gather a good group of people in. And there's going to be a, over here in this corner, there's going to be a bit of a, like a, like a fire. It's got a sacred fire that's been burning nonstop for as long as people can remember. Over here, there's going to be a basin of water. And... There's going to be a torch, a ceremonial torch, and the torch is going to be lit at the start of the sacrifice. The, the, um, whatever you're offering to the gods is going to be laid on the, uh, laid on the altar, and you're going to take the, alt- the torch, you're going, to, you're going to put it in the fire, it's going to light the torch, and you're going to take the torch over here, and you're going to dip it in the sacred water, and, and this is what purifies, apparently, the water in the ancient um, Greco-Roman world's eyes. You would take the fire, stick it in there, obviously puts the fire out, but now the water is purified because it's been purified by the sacred fire. And so you're going to take the water, you're going to take some of it, and you're going to sprinkle it on the people who were there, and you're going to sprinkle it on the altar, and on the sacrifice, and on yourself, and the water will purify all of us um, who are gathered here for whatever sacrifice to whatever God we're worshiping. Um, 
And at this point, there's going to be this sort of moment of silence here. Um, it's called the euphemia. Um, it's going to be a moment where we kind of stop and we ponder for a second what it feels like to be clean and holy. All right, to, to be purified, to be washed by the purifying waters that were made clean by the sacred fire of whatever god, Zeus, or whoever you're worshiping. Um, and you're going to sit in silence for a minute. And when that's all done, the priest is going to take um, a basket of barley, and he's going to scatter the barley on the sacrifice on the altar and around for the people to pick up and take of and eat little, little mid-worship snacks. Um, and so... This is the process of offering the sacrifice. So when Paul uses this word, begun, he uses this word, anarchistai, this is the process he's referring to. It's the beginning rituals of the sacrifice. It's the, um, I, you, when you began the sacrifice, this is what he's talking about, when you began what you were doing, um, there was a certain way it was being done. It was very particular. And, and Paul's audience, they're not Jewish, um, and they, this is how they would have heard this word and, and thought about it. So there's another word here. If you're going to have a beginning, you're going to have an ending. So the word, sometimes it's translated ending, sometimes it's translated perfected. The word is epitalane. Everyone say epitalane. All right. So that means the sacrifice has been completed. It's the completion of the sacrifice in every detail. The right amount of barley has been measured and counted and scattered. Um, things have been done in order. The right measure of whatever meat and animal you're offering to the gods has been placed on. Everything has been done to the T. Everything has been perfectly completed, and the gods are now satisfied. And now the disease that is ravaging your people will end. Whatever you're praying for to these gods. Um, and so Paul is using this language that they very much understood. So what is this? Why did they do this? Where does this come from? Um, the altars and the sacrifices... Um, believe it or not, maybe you, you didn't know this, they're not original to the people of Israel. Um, there are ancient worship altars that have been found that, that, that predate Israel by an incredibly long time. Um, and so one of them, there's one of my favorite documentaries of all time, uh, is called The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Terrible name. Great documentary. Um, so there's this cave in France, in, um, it's called the Chauvat Cave, or... Sure. I forget. Something like that. Cave in France. Um, and Chauvet, I believe. Chauvet Cave. And it was discovered by two hikers hiking up in the hills. Um, they were walking by this cliff face, and they felt like a gust of wind coming out of this, like, crevasse. Um, and they're, feel, they're like, what is this? There's a lot of wind coming up out of here. And so they, they sort of pulled it aside, and they spelunked down inside. And um, what they found was the oldest known human cave paintings ever. Um, there's, there's crystals over the top of these cave paintings that we know how long they take to form. These, thing, these, these cave paintings are measured uh, are to be about, estimated to be about 30,000 years old. Um, and there's some fascinating things. So over here, um, there's cave lions on the wall that are, that are drawn there. Cave lions went extinct 15,000 years ago. Um, and scientists have always wondered if they had manes. And this cave revealed to them, oh, no, apparently they didn't have manes. Um, and you can see different forms of art sort of being drawn. You can see different attempts up here. You have a rhino in motion. So this is, this is France, and there's rhinos. 
and there's buffalo, and there's lions in France. Did you know this? I didn't know this. Um, and so they find all these caves. Um, there's, also, there's also a bunch of um, sort of uh, weird abstract art that is done, like a bunch of red hands all over a wall. There's um, the first ever painting of a, of, a, of a nude human being in this cave. It's, it, it's the things that they found in this cave are insane. And they say it was perfectly preserved because the, the mountain collapsed one day um, and sealed up these caves. Um, and there's something else fascinating. In the middle of this room, they found a sort of a, a stone sort of structure, an altar with bones around it and sort of charcoal that they actually used to draw these things. Um, so something, things had been offered as sacrifices on this altar 30,000 years ago. And this is fascinating where does this come from? Why do human beings feel the need to offer these sacrifices? Well, um, all the work that's been done by, by archaeologists, by, so, um, by sociologists, um, kind of tells us how this sort of happens. You have, it's, a lot of it has to do with, in the ancient people's minds, it had to do with a lack of control. You, they come up with a system of they know how the sun is is, is moving. They understand sort of um, the tides and, and the moon phases. They know when to plant crops. But sometimes you plant crops and rain doesn't fall. And then there's other times where a, a random disease, half the people in your, in, your, in your town, your city, will just be wiped out by this unseen disease. And there's other times where you're expecting the rain to fall and nurture your crops and hail falls and destroys them. And there's other times where lightning strikes and terrifies you and kills people. And so there's this constant fear um, of these elements, and eventually the people started giving them names. And we have tons and tons of records of, of the, the thousands and tens of thousands of gods that the ancient people used to worship. Um, and so they, you know, some, it, was, it was sort of like the elements around them were very fickle in the ancient people's minds, and so sometimes the rain wouldn't fall. And so they, they figured the rain was mad at them, and so they, they, there was a rain god, and then there was a sun god. So uh, a few of these gods... Um, we know that um, Sham was the sky god, Sham, and then there was, and there was Baal, the god of lightning. Uh, then you have a god of the waters. His name was Yam. You have a, a moon god. His name was Hana. You have a sun god. whose name is Utu. And uh, the ancient Greeks actually had thousands and thousands of gods. Paul writes about this and talks to them about it. Um, the ancient Sumerians, uh, one of the earliest civilizations that, that, that ever walked the earth, that, that one of the earliest records of any civilization that we have is the Sumerians. <laughs> and uh, they worshipped a god named Ninkasi, who was actually the goddess of beer. <laughs> Fascinating. Incredibly long time ago, they worshipped the god of beer. Um, and so, like, they, there was gods for everything, everything. Um, and they were trying constantly to keep on the good sides of these gods because they needed rain to fall. They needed to stay healthy. They needed, they needed diseases to be eradicated. Um, and so there's this fear inside of them that these gods will become angry, and so they start offering they start building altars and offering sacrifices. Well, how did that start? Well, um, a lot of it has to do with a little bit of confirmation bias. Let's say that one day there's sort of an elder in the tribe, and he's, uh, there's been a drought for a very long time, and this elder has um, killed a deer. And he's by himself. Maybe he's traveling. Um, he's, he's spending some alone time in the wilderness. And he eats as much of the deer as he can. Um, but they don't have refrigeration, obviously, back then. Um, I mean, where would you plug it in? Um, 
And so he's in the middle of the desert, and so what he decides is, I don't want wild animals to come and eat me because they smell the flesh. And so he throws it on the fire, and the smoke rises up into the stars. And then as the smoke rises, suddenly it starts to rain. It hasn't rained in a very long time. And suddenly you stumble upon the idea, the god of rain smelled the meat that I was cooking on on the fire and was pleased and sent rain. And so a few days later, he meets a, a weary traveler on the road, and the traveler is, where are you, go? where are you going? I'm, I'm, I'm fleeing from my land. There hasn't been rain there in forever. He says, you know what? There's, there's a God there that needs to be worshipped, and here's how you do it. Um, you take a certain portion of deer, and you burn it at a certain time of day, and it will bring rain. Over the, over the uh, centuries, thousands and thousands of years, there started to be these elaborate temples and all kinds of altars um, and all kinds of different ways that people would offer sacrifices to appease whatever gods were angry with them. Um, and there was this constant fear that the gods were not happy with them at all. But there's a problem. The problem is that these are not personal gods. They've never talked to them. They don't hear from them. They have no idea what these gods want, where they are, who they are, um, or how really to please them. It's all just kind of guessing. And so the people have to figure some stuff out. I mean, you offer a sacrifice at the beginning of the crop season, and you have tenfold the amount of crops that you had planned on. The gods have smiled upon you and blessed you, and so what are you going to do? You can't just offer the same amount of sacrifice as you did before because that's offensive. And if you offend the God, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You'll never have crops again. And so you have to offer more. And then the very next year, maybe, um, you don't have any crops. And your only logical conclusion is, well, I didn't offer enough sacrifices, and so you offer more. So good or bad, you offer more sacrifices and more and more and more. And this thing starts to ramp up and ramp up and ramp up. Um, The prophets of Baal at the temple of, of, of Baal... Um, got to a point after offering sacrifices for centuries that they started cutting themselves and letting the blood flow from their arms onto the altar because they didn't know what else to offer because things weren't going the way that they had hoped and it wasn't going well. And so they would actually, I don't know what else to give. I'll give you my own, my own blood, my own flesh. Um, and then it gets worse. You have the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Phoenicians. They would offer their children regularly to the god, the fire god, Moloch. Um, you can read about this in the scriptures. It's in there. Um, not long ago, archaeologists were excavating an ancient Aztec temple, and underneath this temple, they dug up the remains of 42 children who had been offered to their god. And this thing starts ramping up higher and higher and higher, and the people are desperate to know, how do I make peace with the gods in the sky that they're terrified of? People still do this today in various cultures and various religions. Here's a picture from the 1800s of a, um, an Indian ascetic. Um, they, they shun all comforts and, and um, they choose to live in, in pain. Um, and so this guy, he had a grate built and put around his neck so he could never lie down his entire life. And he lives his entire life, and there's a lot of these guys, they, they live their entire life never experiencing a really good nap um, because they think somehow this is what the gods want of them, and this is how they achieve spiritual enlightenment. Um, this has worked its way into certain um, really 18th century, uh, 19th century sects of, of, of Catholicism where you have people 
whipping themselves and hurting themselves. You have ascetism um, scattered throughout Christianity. It's, it's this idea that, that God wants you to be miserable and unhappy, and that's how you earn his favor. When I was a kid, I remember um, growing up in a, a bit of a Southern Baptist tradition that, that, um, that if, if there was ever a place I didn't want to go and, uh, and, and show the love of God to people, that that's where God would send me. Um, and, that, and that don't ever... Don't ever, like, pray for patience because uh, God will give it to you. And, and so, like, all these ways that I, that I, it's sort of ingrained in us that, like, this is how you, you pay for God's love and your sin through your own pain. And this is terrifying. And so it's in to this world, the world of the altar and the sacrifices, that the Bible is written. And it's, it's, it's amazing because the Bible's not written, like, separately, like, disconnected from everything. It's written right into it. And you see all these traditions in the scriptures uh, with the surrounding people. Um, And then you have this book called Leviticus. If you've ever read the book of Leviticus, first off, congratulations. Um, You deserve like a badge. The book of Leviticus. Um, It's it's a really crazy book. It's really long and it's all about how to offer the sacrifices. Now, we read this today and we look back and we think, well, that's barbaric, and that's so backwards, and people need to reject the Bible for this particular kind of thing, that we don't need this. Uh, we're enlightened today and moving forward. But here's the thing. Um, historic arrogance is not healthy because you don't understand what the people were going through. We always look back, and we like to think that maybe um, we wouldn't make the decisions that ancient peoples made. We like to think that maybe during World War II, we would have not taken, if we were German, we would not have taken part in what was going on there. We like to think that if we were in South Africa um, not too long ago, that we wouldn't have, have taken part in, in apartheid. But um, we are here in time, and we can look back, and we can feel really prideful and good about ourselves. But I guarantee you, 50 years from now, people will look back at us and say, I can't believe they took part in that, um, whatever it is. And so we look back at the book of, book of Leviticus, and we think, oh, that's awful. But here's the thing. In its day, when it was written, it was, it was incredibly progressive. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. Because Leviticus is a fascinating book because it's, it's written to tell people, here's what God thinks of you. Here's how to be at peace with him. If you offer this sacrifice, you'll be at peace with God. If you offer this sacrifice for this, you'll be at peace with God. If you offer this sacrifice... You'll be at peace with God. That's what the book is. And then it sort of goes relational and says, if someone does this to you, this is how you respond. And then you're at peace again. And it's not going to be, we're not going to ramp this up with retribution. Eye for an eye. It's going to stop. We're going to be at peace. You're not going to, someone takes your eye, you're not going to kill their whole family, which is what would happen. It still happens today in the Middle East. And so the book of Leviticus was this book where the people, it was f- absolutely freeing. It was something the people had never heard before. Um, and, and here's the thing. So it talks about several, in the book of Leviticus, several, uh, hold on, yeah, several different types of, of, of offerings. And there was this process. And there's like basically four steps. Um, and the, the, first, the first part, the first part of the sacrifice was an acknowledgement that you were allowed to draw near to God and that God was was personal. He would communicate with you. He would speak to you. This was groundbreaking. Nobody had ever heard anything like this. And God is talking to you. And you can hear. And you can reciprocate. And you can respond with sacrifices. And so there's other steps of the sacrifice. But the very last step is called the, the, the Shemalim offering. And it was, it was 
Shamalim, it comes from the, the Jewish word, obviously, shalom. It means peace. It means harmony. Peace and harmony offering. And at the very end of these sacrifices, the way this would work is um, all of your family and your friends and your community would gather at this sacrifice and it would be placed on the altar and it would be offered to God. And then, after it was offered to God, it would be, um, a huge portion of it would be taken and the barley would be picked up and the wine would be passed around and everyone would gather around and they would share a meal at the table with God. And they would sit and they, everyone would be fed. And they could take some time and be in harmony and peace with God and just for a little while sit in silence and say, I need to be reminded of this daily, that God wants to be at peace with me. He wants me to know that I'm loved and that there's nothing else to be done. And so then we go back to our passage today and we read it, having begun, having anarchist die by the Spirit, are you now being perfected, epitolein, by the flesh? Um, we know when we come to Christ that it's, it's about the inside. It's about faith. It's about understanding that what Jesus did is, like we're saying, his, his love, his actions, they were enough. Like it's, there's nothing more to offer. Yet somehow the recipients of Paul's letter are convinced that there is more to do that you've got to become like the Judaizers. You've got to wear certain clothes, dress a certain way, speak certain language, um, give certain tithes and offerings, and this is how you earn God's favor on top of that. And Paul says, this is not about the outside. Stop making this about the outside. There's nothing to do. I mean, there's, there's two types of sermons. There's sermons where the pastor stands up and says, here's what you should do. And there's other sermons where he says, there's nothing to do. This is that sermon. There's nothing to do. It's done. And Paul says, look, this was begun by the Spirit. Why are you trying to complete more sacrifices in the flesh? It's over. It's done. Paul actually wrote to another church. Um, in, uh, there was a Roman colony called Philippi. Originally, when he found, he went to the city of Philippi. He found his, his little group of mostly women by, down by the water. And he, there's a church there, a Christian church. And so he he sort of helps them get this thing off the ground and gets this thing planted. Um, and he writes to them, and here's what he says right off the bat at the beginning of the passage. He says, in the beginning of the letter, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The words that he uses are the same words. Began was anarchist thy, completion was epitaleus thy. Um, it's pronounced a little different, but it's the same word. Um, he, he says this over and over again. The thing he has to constantly remind Christians is that, hey, um, there's nothing to do. It's done. And we need to respond sometimes with a little bit of silence and pondering and meditating on the word of God and the fact that like it's, it's done. And you can put your faith in that and, and, and accept that. And Paul constantly wants people to understand this. Oftentimes I, I come here and I, um, and I wonder how many people um, get up and go to church because they have guilt or shame and they feel like this is a way to get rid of it. They feel like, well, I, I've, it's been a bad week, man. I, I need to go to church. I've heard people say that. Man, I need to go to church. Why? Man, I've just been making bad decisions. So we, we, go, to, we go to church, which is a really bad way to think of this. Um, so we go to church um, and we... We think that, that this makes God happy, that this is for God, 
this is for, this is for you. The work has been done. We come to gather as the body of Christ to be reminded that the work has been done. This is for you. This is, this is a way for you to be reminded that you are at peace with God. It's done. And so, it's, you know, you don't, there's, we don't sing really hard to, to, to win God's favor. We don't, we don't take communion to, like, to cleanse ourselves. None of this. All of this is a reminder that the God who started the sacrifice also finished the sacrifice and he did it right and there's no need for you to panic and worry that um, you're falling out of his love. It's not happening. And then sometimes um, terrible things happen and we sit and we wonder, well, this is because I did that. This is because I did that. This is because I did that and God is now punishing me. No, that's not the way it works. Look, sowing sin will will always reap pain. That's just kind of how it works. Um, But that is not God just hurling lightning bolts at you. You're not, you don't have that kind of relationship with God. And this is the thing, like, all of this is also communal with the people around us. And so how many of you, um, you've been in a relationship with people for a long time, old friends maybe, and then someone said something wrong or did something wrong or just they were selfish, either you or them, and so now you don't talk and, um, or you do, but they spend all their time trying to, like, cover their sin to you. And so they write you really nice texts, and they're giving you gifts. They're paying for your dinner, buying you drinks. Um, and all of this is wrapped up in guilt. Maybe you're married to this person, and they have absolutely betrayed you, and they're hurt. they've hurt you. And so now for years, you've just been letting them sort of pay you back, or you've been trying to pay someone else back. Um, this is the kind of tyranny that humankind was under for tens of thousands of years, and God wants you to know there's no reason to live like this. The, the, the burden that Christ gives, it's, it's easy, it's light. Let it go, forgive. When the, when the price has been paid, the book of Leviticus, the, the works of Christ, all of this is designed to tell you that there's no debt, there's nothing else for you to do. And, and, and then the point is we're supposed to take this relationship with God and share it with each other. And so that's actually what forgiveness is. The debt has been paid. There's nothing else to pay. And so if I forgive you for the things that you've done, it's me letting you know, hey, there's nothing else to be done. There's nothing else to be done. It's over. We're good. We're at peace. Stop trying to earn my favor. Trying to earn the favor of each other should actually be a little bit offensive because it's unchristian. It, it doesn't make sense in a, in a, a gospel worldview. And so, I mean, the previous verse, Paul uses a word that, that basically means placard. And it, it, it means, it's a word that basically, if you, if you weren't here, go back and listen to the podcast. He uses a word to say when Jesus was hung on that cross, it's as if, um, it was as if someone wrote a, a debt-free placard, um, something that would be hung in an ancient sort of um, a, a marketplace that said, um, from a father about a son, and it said, my son owes no money, he is free. He is no longer enslaved to whoever to work for them for this many years. He is free. The price has been paid and it's hung on the wall. And then, so Paul basically says, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was a placard for you to see, saying there there is no more debt. It's paid. It's done. It's over. You don't need to live in fear. You don't need to worry that God is taking retribution on you. And you can sit in the the silence of the sacrifice, the euphemia, and, and just be at peace.
And then eventually, after you've pondered this long enough, you open your eyes and you come to the table and you are fed and you are nourished. Bread and wine. And you understand that there's nothing left to do but respond to love with love. And that's how it works. And so all of this is connected with what Paul is saying here. All the language of the sacrifices, all the ancient views of people were under the tyranny of all of this. I mean, when I, when I hear philosophers and, and scientists today talk about how, oh, the work of science is freeing everyone from the tyranny of religion, I always kind of laugh and say, too late. Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. We've been free of that for a long time. But welcome to the party. I'm glad you're finally realizing all of this. Um, but that's not us. I know, I know constantly there's theologians trying to take us back there. Don't let them. You remind them, no, no, we're free. The gospel says we're free. Um, and so there, this should cause us to respond in, in really a few ways. Um, first off, we should stop holding back forgiveness from each other. We are forgiven. And we are in a communal relationship with God and people. And we must forgive. We can't let people try to earn our favor. We can't let that continue. Uh, second, we need, to, we, need to, we need to stop making people earn our favor. Uh, how many people every single day are doing everything they can, projecting every possible image that they can to earn your favor so that you will look at them and say, you're great, you're talented, you're beautiful, you're accomplished. You're, all of this. Your generation in particular is, is really wrapped up in this. We've got to get a hold of it because the gospel won't allow it. You freely and graciously give out your affection and bless people. This is what you should be doing. Um, do not make people earn your favor. You look at them and you say, hey, you're good, you're loved, you're beautiful. You are, are necessary in this world. God knows you're here and he's chasing you down. And the third thing we should probably do is stop making people feel inadequate if we don't measure up. Because let's be honest, none of us really do. And we're all in the same boat. That's what the gospel does, puts us all in the same boat. Um, we should stop making people feel like they don't have what it takes, women, minorities, the ways that we've oppressed people. We can't take part in that anymore. It's time for that to end. Oh, we need to stop pretending that we are where we are because we did everything right. Because when you do this, when you stand up and say, well, I made all the right decisions, and so now I'm, I'm well off, and I've got a paid-for house, and a paid-for car, and I'm doing great. And it's all because of decisions I've made, and, and you didn't, so there, there you are. Um, when you do this, you sound like the ancient prophets who, uh, when, basically, when they received rain, they thought it was because they threw the right amount of deer on the altar. That's what you sound like. It's survivor bias. There's lots of people who made all the same decisions that you did and things went really bad for them. And there was death and there was pain and loss, bankruptcy, utter turmoil, a loss of faith. They did everything you did and didn't have the same results. And so the response is not to stand up and say, well, I did it all right, so God has blessed me. No, it rains. Scriptures are clear. It rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. All of us. 
I mean, if we ponder the words of Jesus, I, I'm putting a particular version up here that Eugene Peterson's like sort of um, loose translation because sometimes he just, he just says it right. And here's what he says. This is the words of Jesus. He says, You are familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and bad, the nice and the nasty. Um... God's blessings on your life are not determined by your spiritual performance. They are not. I want you to be free of that weight. I was told this many times in my life. And it actually keeps you from growing. Because it tells you you're not ready to move forward. You're not ready to grow. You're not ready to do new things and learn new things. And it leaves you stuck where you were for a very long time. But when you are told that this has been conquered that you are free of it, and you start to believe it, you actually find yourself being free of it. And so let's take some time and pray. Um, this would be what the... Uh, we're we're going to spend some time in communion. For our communion service, if you guys want to gather the elements and scatter around the room uh, for us, this would be that part of the sacrifice where the people would pause, and they'd be in silence, and they would ponder what it feels like to be right with God. Something that you know, and something that is inside of you, but something that for tens of thousands of years mankind did not know. And God was telling them over and over and over. Accept it. Embrace it. Don't fight it. And we're going to take communion. We're going to take a piece of bread. We're going to dip it in the wine. You're going to eat it, and you're going to take it down inside of you um, to remind you that the gospel is for you. That whatever you're bringing to the table, all of your sin, all of your pain, all of your shame and guilt, um, no matter what you bring to the table, we are all fed the same. And it reminds us that the sacrifice of Jesus, him being poured out for all of us, is the hope of the world. And so take some time before you take communion today. Pray. Ponder what it feels like to be right with God. And ask that he would help you be reminded day after day after day that you are right with God. You are right with God. You are right with God. This will change your actions. It will change the way you live. You will find yourself leading towards a holy life more and more every day. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Be with us. Convict us of our pride and our arrogance. Humble us. Remind us that you are the one who started the work, did the sacrifice, and did it perfectly. Remind us that we are free because of it. Thank you. In your name.